And uh, last week, we focused in on chapter 4, verses 23 to 31. In our, and I just got to give you a little refresher course here so we can get you up to date. And for those of you that, that haven't been with us, we welcome you, but you need to get a little context. But in our time together last week, we, we looked at how members of the church gathered together to pray for boldness, uh, to keep sharing the gospel after the Sanhedrin threatened them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Their prayer was an amazing prayer. And it lined up with the will of God. Uh, when we pray uh, according to God's will, he answers those prayers. And so this is precisely what they did. They prayed for boldness to keep sharing the gospel after being threatened repeatedly. Their prayer was immediately answered by God. And the sign of his approval was that he shook their meeting space. The upper room, it shook. And uh, that was an affirmation that God was pleased with their prayer and that he had answered their prayer. Um, up to this point in the narrative, Luke's portrayal of the church has been totally positive. Uh, we have been together studying this book for several months now, probably four and a half months now, and we've gotten all the way up to chapter four, and the whole time, everything that we've seen has been very positive and uh, encouraging. It's been very K-lovish. Um, it's been really, really neat, and uh, <laughs> we have seen the church in all of its pristine beauty. Um, we have seen the church in its freshness and in its vitality, all the way from its birth, its incarnation on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2, up to now. We've literally marveled at the church's fellowship and unity and its devotion uh, to the things that it should be devoted to, like to the teaching of the apostles and, and to prayer and those things. So it's, Luke has painted a beautiful, beautiful picture of the church for us, and we've just marveled at God's church through this whole time. Now, one of the things that we have to, to keep in mind is that um, things change in the church. We actually are getting to a text where we'll see a shift and, and a change to some degree. And um, the church is not perfect. It's not a perfect place with perfect people, and that's precisely why it's not perfect, because it has imperfect people in it. It's made up of, of sinners, and the early church, which is the church that we always marvel at and we're always saying to ourselves, wow, I really wish that we could get back to that day. And uh, the reality is, is that the early church was no exception. Uh, there were, it was comprised of sinners just like us, and uh, there was error in the church, and we are going to examine a, a text together where we see error and sin. This section of Acts uh, chronicles really a negative milestone in the church's history, and that's the first recorded instance of sin. As a rule of thumb, we must remember that Satan's purpose is to oppose the work of God always. Um, this is why the Bible calls him adversary. That's why he has that name. He bears that title. Where God is at work, he will be active. His first attack on the church, the persecution of the apostles by the Sanhedrin, basically backfired. Not only did it fail to silence the apostles in the church, but it caused them to seek the Lord for power and opportunities to continue to speak the name of Jesus boldly. 
Acts 4.31, we ended with that text last week, says that the church became filled with the Holy Spirit and prevailed against the enemy, prevailed against the Sanhedrin, which was being used by the enemy. Uh, How did they prevail? By continuing to speak the gospel with all boldness. So Satan's first attempt at ending the church or messing up the church was crushed. Faced with defeat, Satan, the adversary, changed his tactics. Realizing that external pressure and persecution only fanned the flames of gospel passion, he decided to get at the base of the fire. To do so, he infiltrated the church to attack it with corruption from within. In the first part of our study section this morning, which will be 432 to 37, we will once again be presented with a positive picture of the church where there is obedience, unity, and generosity. In the second part, which is 5, 1 to 11, and I, you guys, many of you know me now by, by this time that I don't like to teach on that large of sections because I think we miss stuff, but you can't teach the end of 4, and you, you just can't do the end of 4 and stop there. You have to teach through the beginning of 5. They're linked together. There's an opposing thing. There's a contrast there, so you have to do it. But in the second part, which is 5, 1 to 11, we'll get to that, in six months, well, no, just a f- probably 45 minutes or so, hopefully, praise the Lord, we will see how Satan literally infiltrated the church and brought about the first recorded example of sin and how God dealt with the disobedient members. Let's read our main passage together and then pray, and we'll examine it together. So we're going to be looking at 4.32 to 5. 11, and then we'll expound on it. 4.32 to 5.11, I'll read now. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but that everything, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. 3.6. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, parentheses, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we shift to 5, 5, 1. It says, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard, all who heard these words. He fell down and breathed his last, and a great fear... Whoa, I just read that part. Who heard of it. That's it, my bad. It's so hard to see up here. We don't have lighting up here yet, so it's like I have to aim this towards you. 
And my eyesight stinks as it is. I got like 22,000, you know, 20 by 1,000, so it's terrible, so my bad. And then it says in 6, the young, yeah, it's pathetic. And we're a small church, so we don't care about precision. Um, verse 6, the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. How bizarre is that? And then 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And then it says this in 11, the last verse. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Father, um, this is a a very challenging text to to read and to study and to even teach on. It was difficult for me to, to grasp all that's there, and I probably didn't come anywhere near all of it. But I think the thing that makes it difficult is the deception, the sin that enters the church, and and then the way that you dealt with that sin so decisively. And it, we marvel at it, but there's a fear about it. And we ask ourselves in this moment, why? Why would you do such a thing, God, against this? And we will soon see, Lord. God, open our hearts and minds to you, God. I pray that your gospel would penetrate our hearts today, God, exposing the wickedness and things that we have stored within us. Draw those things out today, God. Cause conviction and repentance and and healing and restoration to you father that's what we desire god protect our minds and hearts against the enemy now who aims to rob kill steal lie to us deceive us further keep us in our unhealthy patterns our sinful patterns who who desires to keep us separated from you further god we pray against him guard my own lips father as i preach your word um i am a fallible man who makes mistakes consistently. I am, uh, as I always say about myself, and Paul said about himself, I'm the chief of sinners, God. Guard me in this time. May I only glorify you in this moment. May the praise and honor go to you. Open our hearts and minds in this very moment, Jesus. And we pray this in your matchless name. Amen. All right, well, you guys ready? You got note thingies there, sheets, and you got a pen and everything? You're going to want to take notes. We got a lot of stuff to cover So bear with me, okay? We're going to creep through it, and I'll move as quickly as I can. Lots of stuff to cover, and God is going to minister to us in this moment. I know he is. Let's look at 32 together. It says, let me get a little drink quick because I'm starting to get Sahara mouth. That's what I call it. I get all dried out. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Here we see, first thing that we see here is that the church had grown beyond a recordable amount. We see it right there in the text. Now the full number, that's where it's represented. The church had, you know, it had come to this place in growth, exponential growth, that Luke and the apostles couldn't track how many believers there were in it anymore. Back in um, chapter 2, the church had, 
3,000 members, and then in the early part of chapter 4, it grew by another 2,000, making the total 5,000. In verse 32, our verse, right at the beginning, Luke shifts from a specific number, because we had 3,000, we had 2,000, which made 5,000. He shifts from a specific number to the phrase, the full number. He did this because he couldn't count. The church had just exploded. It had grown and grown and grown exponentially. God was saving sinners. They were coming to Jesus in repentance and faith. And there were so many of them that it was just like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, forget it. I mean, there was just, there was just a crowd when the church gathered. There was a crowd when they had fellowship, when they devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles, when they came together. And later in chapter 5, we'll see they came together in the, uh, the Solomon's portico. That's where the church you know, gathered for teaching and stuff. It's just a multitude of people at this point. The full number. We don't know how many there were, but there were tons and tons and tons. Now, this was primarily, primarily due, and this is amazing, this was primarily due to how the church spoke the gospel in all boldness as recorded in 31. It's like in verse 31, the church prays for boldness to speak the gospel, and now in the next verse, the church had exploded exponentially, too big to count all of the people. Why? Because the gospel went forth. People were filled with boldness, filled with the Holy Spirit, and they went out and began to proclaim the gospel and share the gospel with their neighbors and friends and those that they passed by in the marketplaces and all of these things, and it just took off. It exploded. We don't know how many there were. There were tons. Now, Luke reminds us of, again, the unity of the early church. It's almost like the section, the first part of our section, 32 uh, to 37 or whatever it is, it's almost like this is another picture of 242 to 47. Remember when we studied that and they were devoted to these things and they had all this unity and they were sharing all these things and all this? This is almost like a snapshot of that section again. And Luke reminds us again of the unity of the early church. He says, now the full number of those who believed were what? Were of one heart and soul. This large body of believers were unified in heart and soul. This was brought about by the gospel. The gospel delivers people from the corrupt system of this world where there is individualism and performance and selfishness and strife and disharmony and disunity. It takes them from that world system and from that, that, that personal philosophy and that poisonous thing of the world where there's all this individualism and it's all about you and this individualism. It takes people out of that system of thinking, out of the world, and it draws them and brings them and literally thrusts them into a fellowship, into a family, a real family, a spiritual family who does physical life together and emotional life and all these things. But it brings you out of this individualistic mindset and now it makes you, it brings you into this community where there's one heart and one mind, all rallied around Jesus Christ. And so it's the gospel that brings about this, this kind of, of unity, literally. Now, when areas of our lives, like in our giving, and you know, people don't like to talk about the giving, and they feel like pastors talk about it, so much, and, and one of the reasons why pastors talk about it so much and all that is because it's the, probably one of the biggest areas of weakness in the church, and I certainly don't like to 
pulverize people over it and all that, but that's an area of weakness and of individualism. But when areas of our lives, like in our giving or maybe even in our treatment of others, I mean, it could be probably a thousand different things. When those areas of our lives are plagued by disobedience in these things, this is a sign that the gospel is not present in those areas. Uh, In the area of unity, when we fellowship and gather in these things and we're doing life with people where there's disunity, where there's strife, where there's animosity and anger towards people. These are areas in our lives where the gospel hasn't taken seed or it's been minimalized or it's been covered or we've got so much sin that we, you know, we, we're not even corresponding with the commands of Christ and the gospel. But when areas of our lives like that are filled with disobedience and all, that's a sign that the gospel is not present. Now, we all have areas in our lives that are unaffected or minimally affected by the gospel. And yet Christ commands that we yield all areas of our lives to him. Now, is that impossible? It certainly seems like it, right? I mean, we have our areas, and let's say they're, they're compartments, and we have this compartment and this compartment and this compartment, and, and, and there's no doubt that these six compartments of our life belong to Christ. They're lathered in the gospel, and we're living out the gospel, and the gospel has transformed those areas. Now look at some of those other compartments that are back behind the curtain. These are areas that the gospel really hasn't taken seed, and by all statistics, one of them would be in the generosity of the church, because giving is always so low in the church. Now, there are people that give and give beyond and all of that, but for the most part, it's 15 to 20 percent of the church is carrying the rest of the church with its giving. Now, why is that? Reason, gospel hasn't taken seed there. See, the gospel calls for us to target, to aim towards the target of Christ, our finances and our possessions. They don't belong to us. Our thinking is transformed. What we have and what we possess belongs to the kingdom of God, is to be leveraged and utilized for God's purposes. So if we don't look at it that way and we hold back in our giving or if our relationships are highly affected by things, that's a sign the gospel needs to penetrate, needs to perpetrate, needs to transform those areas of our lives. And unity is a huge one. How much disunity is there in the church, especially over theology? Get out of here. We're not going to acknowledge them as Christians. Because they think a little differently about this particular doctrine or, or this thing or that thing. You know, how is disunity made manifest in the church? Oh, by a multitude of ways. Why is there disunity? Because the gospel isn't present there. Or because it's been minimized. It's been covered. It's been put on the back burner. Or we have areas that haven't been transformed. So is it impossible? I don't think it's impossible, but I'd say that it's certainly difficult to target or to aim our entire life and all the compartments and sections to the gospel, to Christ. I'd say it's very difficult. It was extremely difficult for the Apostle Paul, who, uh, you know, for me personally, man, that dude's the man. You know, I read the epistles and I'm like, I stink, you're amazing. You know, I mean, that guy was just awesome, man. When I think of Jesus, you know, couple notches down there's the apostle paul you know and 
Peter's really not on the ladder, you know, even though he was amazing and used by God, but, you know, he's the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth, you know, and he walked around with a flip-flop in his mouth because he always said the dumbest things. But when I think of Paul, I think of this guy gets it. This guy gets it. He forsakes his, his life and his, his, you know, he forsakes everything for the cause of Christ. This guy gets it. But it was extremely difficult for Paul to hand over the entirety of his life to Jesus, to the gospel. It, it actually, he actually told the Corinthian believers that he beat or buffeted the loose areas of his life into submission to Christ. I mean, he had to like sort of, he paints a picture of like a pugilist, like he had to like box himself, like, oh, this area is out of whack, it's out of God's will, it's not saturated in the gospel, it hasn't been transformed, so he buffeted himself, he beat himself into submission. Have you ever felt like you're in that battle? Oh, you can easily square off with a guy in front of the supermarket. Have you ever felt like you're squaring off with yourself all day, every day? How many times have you spiritually socked yourself in the chin? What are you thinking? What are you doing? This area is out of whack. What, what is going on? That conviction comes. See, that's what Paul did. Paul didn't want to be disqualified from the ministry that God had graciously given him. So what did he do? Because it's pretty easy for a preacher pastor to get disqualified. It doesn't take a whole lot. We've seen them come and go. Amen? Don't look at me like that. You guys are like, I'm watching you now, pal. But he had to kind of beat his body and his mind and his heart into submission to Christ. He wanted to be what we would call a gospel-centered individual completely throughout. Gospel is transforming every area. Every area is yielded over to Christ. Now, if we consciously choose, and you literally have to do this, you have to think about this, if we consciously choose to obey Christ in these difficult areas each day. Because we don't need to think, okay, that area is just going to change and I won't have to think about that again and then we'll move to the next, whatever. You're going to have to every day wake up. If you still have breath, God didn't take you home in the middle of the night for whatever reason. You wake up, you've got to begin to make decisions and consciously make decisions that today, today I am going to commit, Holy Spirit, drop an anvil on my face when I'm tempted and about to do something. Help me today, Jesus. If you do not do this, if I do not consciously choose you this morning, today's going to be one heck of a day. I've literally gotten to where I have to do that. Christ, I'm aware of these areas. I wake up, I'm aware of these areas of weakness where you want to transform these areas of the gospel. I yield them to you today. And I'll call them out. Giving. Relationships, the way that I think about others, whatever these things are. My, my tongue, my tongue can sing the praises of God just like you, and it can curse men. Right after I praise God. Love you, Jesus. Hate you, dude. <laughs> right? Uh, it, it, isn't that the way that it is? Man, that was such a tremendous worship service today. Did you see Bill? What a moron. Bill's like, I feel a disturbance in the force. <laughs> right? Somebody's talking smack about me. I have to consciously choose each day, each moment, really each moment and throughout the day. I've actually set up my iPhone. Praise God for the iPhone. Okay? The cross, unbelievable. Right under that, iPhone. Gives me the iPhone, right? I got the iPhone. God is so good to me. I set that thing up to, to alert me about three times a day. Pray, dummy. Pray, dummy. God, yield the... I have to do it. 
I mean, it's so practical and it sounds so dumb, but I have to do it. I have to consciously choose. Man, I want these areas to be submitted to Christ. And when you come at it from that angle, when that is your heart, God's going to bless you. He's going to bless you. You're asking him for a noble thing according to his will. What happened when the church asked for boldness? Boldness, shake the building, you got it, go out and preach the gospel. When you say, I want to be like Christ, I want to be filled with Christ, I want these areas of my life to honor Christ and be about the gospel, about his kingdom, he's going to bless you and he's going to help you and he's going to transform you. Your faith will grow, your actions will be used by God to further his kingdom and to bless others and the reward for obedience is always joy, unspeakable joy, incredible joy, penetrating joy, lasting joy. Now look at the second half of 32. And no one said that any of these things belonged to him. And no one said, you have to kind of re-express that, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Now, here we see that the church was really, really, really big and really, really, really engaged in common sharing. This, too, is a direct result of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's that generosity. It's that common sharing. It's that giving, that giving heart. That is a fruit of the gospel. Greatest, one of the greatest examples of that in Scripture is a man named Danny DeVito. I mean Zacchaeus. Right? Think about him for a moment. The guy's lost. And, and the Holy Spirit leads him out, and, and Jesus engages him, and he comes back to his house. He's changed by the gospel. He's changed by faith. by repent. And then he, he goes into this mode of repentance, and what does he do? He starts giving stuff away. I'm going to pay back all the people that I jacked up fivefold. I took 100 from Sammy. He's getting 600 from me. I mean, literally. Changed, transformed by the gospel, common sharing is a fruit of the gospel. The gospel transformed the way that these early people viewed their homes and possessions. No longer, again, here's the shift in philosophy, world's philosophy, individuals, mass everything up for yourself, look good, drive the best, you're a stud, you're swag, and you're lost. And then it says, the, the, the gospel literally took these people out of that system and transform the way that they viewed their homes and possessions. No longer did they see themselves as individuals. No longer did they see themselves or their families as individual families. They saw themselves as a gospel community that needed to care and provide for one another. That's the fruit of the gospel. The unity, all these things, the common sharing, that is the fruit. Now, literally, having everything in common in the Greek, in the original, means that they met one another's needs. It doesn't mean that they all liked the same football team, the Israeli olive oilers, or whatever they would have had. I've used that one before. My wife's like, oh, he's bringing that one back up. I hate that one. I hate that one, right? It doesn't mean that they, you know, everyone, they were like robots and I like this and you like this and we're happy as clams. No, it doesn't mean that. There was differences in things. It simply means in the original language that their needs, that they were meeting one another's basic needs like food and clothing and shelter and probably encouragement in these things. Bottom line, everyone was involved in this in the church. No one was left out. If a person had a need, 
the church pooled its resources to meet the need. The church, did you hear me? The church, oh, we realize, and you have to find out about the needs. You have to generate a system where you can find out about the needs. All of a sudden, the church finds out about the needs. People are coming with needs, and the church together, collectively, figures out a way to meet those needs. What an amazing concept. What an amazing thing this is. How far have we gotten from that mentality, that biblical view? I'm not saying that the church doesn't meet needs, and churches work hard, I think, to meet needs. But, you know, so often the needs are just compartmentalized in a church, and it, they get so big, and, and it just it becomes, becomes a system and all that, and, and it loses this organic beauty of meeting those needs in that second and maybe not putting people through a process so they can have the need met or whatever it is. I get it. You need organization. God is a God of order, but there's a beauty to this. And, and we can't say that, well, large churches have to do things differently because they're large churches. This church was probably bigger than most churches are today, with the exception of probably Joel Osteen's mega monolithic 30,000 person yippity-doo-dah, I'm a good guy church, right? I mean, that's what it is. But you, you can't say because you're big or you're small or you're medium-sized that you can't do these kinds of things. We see a very, very large church meeting one another's needs to the point where everyone had everything in common, meaning everyone's needs were met. Oh, that inspires me. And then it scares me because I'm like, how do we pull that off? We need to pull it off. We need to care for one another. We do. We need to make sure that every... How can I live in a nice home and have a car and all this and have a brother whose car's transmission exploded and he can't get around. Could I at least give him some rides? I mean, do you feel that when you find out that someone in your church has a need and, and all your needs are met and you've got it all going on over here and then, and then there's people that are really gutting it out and maybe they're not quite cutting their bills and making their bills. Maybe they're going a little bit hungry because they don't, I don't know about you, but that kills me, you know? And, and I know that as individuals, most of us, we're not at a level where we can just start meeting all those needs on our own. But that's why there's the collective of the church. That's why the church, that's why they brought stuff and gave it to the church and said, distribute it how you will. The church pools together for the mission of God to meet our needs and to benefit our church. It's not just, Paul, you just do this, or Phil, you just do that. And sometimes we just do those things in those moments. But it's a collective, everything in common. It's a beautiful thing. Now, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great, I love this, and great grace was upon them. Verse 33 is another testimony to the boldness that God gave the church. After the Sanhedrin's threats, the apostles continued to what? Boldly speak about the resurrection. The resurrection was a despised doctrine by the Sadducees. They didn't believe in miraculous things or in a lot of the spiritual realm and all that, they opposed all that, and yet we see them out there giving their testimony because they were witnesses to the resurrection. They were out doing it for Jesus Christ. They were out communicating that boldness. It's the boldness, boldness, boldness that God gives us to be able to do that. Now, it says great grace was upon them all. Great grace is meant to denote the high level of favor that the early church experienced now, at this point in the narrative, the common people, the average people, the people that were, the other people that were in the community that weren't part of the church, they had yet to turn against the believers. They were impressed by the church's kindness, by the church's love, its unity, and its generosity. They liked the apostles because they were 
kind and helpful and they performed miracles by healing their sick and doing all these great things and for the people. So the, you know, the, the, the folks, the average folks in the community hadn't turned against the church by this time yet. They kind of liked the church and they thought Christians were pretty nice people and generous people. And I think more than anything, they looked at the Christians like this isolated group in a way that was inviting though but that was living differently and stuff. And so that was very impressive to them. Maybe they look at it like it's a club or a gang. Throw up your gang sign, the cross, you know, I don't know. But they just looked at the church differently because the church really stood out. They were unlike the rest of everyone else around. So the non-believers just checked it out and they're like, this is cool, this is cool. Now it all changed a little later when King Herod Agrippa rose up against the church and beheaded the Apostle James, which was the brother of... John, the sons of Zebedee. The Sanhedrin also did its part by arresting the apostles over and over and over for preaching the resurrection, for preaching the gospel. And then at some point, the public's view of the church changed dramatically. Great grace is meant to denote the favor of God as well, which is far superior than the favor of man, right? God loves his church. He loves his church because it is the bride of his son. God blessed the church with solid teaching from the apostles. This is meant to express the favor of God on the church. God blessed the church with solid teaching from the apostles, with wonders, with gospel unity, and incredible, deep, agape, transformational love. And he blessed the church with provision. God's favor, great grace, was upon them all. Everyone in the church was a partaker of the divine favor that God poured out. It was this beautiful thing. And and you know why? Because the Christians were obedient. They were obeying. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't pour out his favor on you when you're disobedient. I think God's a favorable God, and he loves his children, you know, and what have you. But the church was devoted to the things of God, bending their will, forfeiting their will to follow the will of God. Man, if that's who you are and aim to be, You're favored by God. You're in his will. You're doing what he's called you to do. Now, 34 to 35. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need, it says. The verse says that there was not a needy person among them. This is amazing to me because they aren't certain as to how many people are in the church, but they could assess that it was a very, obviously it was a very large number, but, and people were probably coming and expressing their needs, and, and it was just that these needs were being met as they grew. And so the text says that there wasn't anyone in the church that had a need, because the church was collectively meeting the needs. And to an extreme level, I would say, some members even sold their homes and properties and then brought the proceeds to the apostles who distributed the proceeds or the money. When I first read this, I thought that maybe some of these people that were in the church were acting a little carelessly. And what I mean is that they were selling their homes and properties. If that was the case, where would they live? You know, did they put themselves and their families on the streets so others could have what they needed? I don't think so at all. It could be that they sold their secondary homes and properties. You know, maybe there were some folks in the church that did have a vacation home or had extra property, or I bought this field when I was younger and it's just kind of sitting there. Whatever it is, we don't know. It doesn't exactly say, but it says they were 
selling their properties, and these would have been expensive things, and, and they were bringing the proceeds. I, I suspect that these folks, and, and there were some in the church that just realized that the needs of others in the church were far more important than their vacation homes or extras. You know, I, I don't... <laughs> there's been cases probably where people have just sold everything and put themselves on the street for others, and that's insanity. That's crazy. That's, I mean, I don't, that's positively not required by God. Nowhere in the Scripture does God command, give it all and become homeless so that he can have your nice house. And say that anywhere in Scripture. So I don't think that they were selling off, you know, whatever. Maybe they were doing a bit of downsizing. We've seen that in the church. Francis Chan did that. He lived in a nicer home and all that and sold it and moved into the inner city and lives a little place and, you know, and took the proceeds and, and gave it to people in the church so they could have their needs met. You know, that's a pastor who did that. And that's what pastors should do. They don't have to live in palaces. Are you kidding me? While the people that are coming and giving and being faithful, they're rising up socially and... Uh, it's a desire of every one of our hearts to prosper like that, but not at the expense of God's people. Are you kidding me? If God blesses you with that, great. But pastors need to set an example, I think. Definitely. But anyways, I don't know if they were selling out and going on the street or anything like that. I think they were just liquidating the extras and the extra fields and properties and things that they had, and then they were taking the proceeds and letting the apostles spread that stuff out. And I think that's beautiful. I think that's a beautiful picture of a generous heart, when we look and assess what we have and say, I could do without this so that some people could have maybe some clothes, maybe some food, maybe I could do without this and they could begin to meet that payment, maybe I could do this to help them pay for this or that or help to get those braces, I'm, I don't, it works out in a billion different ways, what a beautiful thing, and I would imagine because we live in America, uh, and that, you know, so many of us have, I mean, obviously we have 10 bazillion times more than other people in other nations that we all could assess what we have and find areas that we could liquidate so that our brothers and sisters could have even their basic needs met. How does that all work out? It's a challenging thing. I don't know. But should we be that as a church? I think so. Maybe we need to assess ourselves, see what we have. Now, <laughs> oh, man. Our world, in our world, a person is measured by what they have, by what they possess. A person's value is determined by what they own and by how they look. But the kingdom of God is radically different. <laughs> in it, we are not judged according to what we own, and our value is not determined by how we look. No, 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 no. In eternity past, God chose to love accept and value you, value us, and bring us into his family through the gospel at his appointed time, okay? The blood-soaked cross illustrates the depth of God's love, the depth of his acceptance and value for you. These early Christians understood these fundamental Christian truths and were therefore freed from the world system of image-building, performance, and building up security for themselves with what they had. You might say, literally, that the truth had set them free. Now, here's the question to you. Has the truth set you free? Have you been freed from worldly indulgences and image building and the pursuit of wealth, treasure, and status? 
Take a look. Here's, here's the litmus test, man. Take a look, and all pastors say it, and I hate it when they say it, and here I am doing it. Take a look at your checking account or your bank card records. Just take a look at what you spend your money on. That is one of the best ways to assess not only where your heart is, but where your security is. You know, if you're spending money all the time on image-based stuff, if you're not just buying the basic stuff to get by, if you're always about image and buying the best and you've got to have the brands and all that and you're spending a fortune on that, meanwhile your brothers and sisters have not and all that, maybe the reality is, is that your security is in the looks. And that's why you buy all the stuff and you spend all the money on that. Or maybe your security is in that palace of a home that you got and you pour all your money into the beautification of that place and making it sick and crazy and it's got scroll work and there's gold inlay. And, you know, wow, that's pretty cool to look at. But at the same time, why are you doing that? What are you trying to communicate by setting yourself up that way? What's the deal, man? Has the truth set you free from that way of thinking? Has the gospel released you from that way of thinking? See, it had released many, many, many folks in the early church, most of them. They weren't living according to the world's standards. If I got to look really good or a certain way and I got to dress a certain way and all that, and my, my identity and my value and, and all of that is wrapped all up in this facade and in this car, on this, you know, this car I drive and in this home I live in and all that. Are you kidding me? Friends, you don't have to impress anybody because in eternity past, God chose you. Oh, you mean that I'm chosen, I'm, I'm already loved, and I'm valued by the one that it really counts in? Yeah, exactly. Oh, so I'm pursuing the favor of man and the status of man and all this, and yet, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. God is the one ultimately who favors me, who loves me, who poured out and shed his blood for me? You can't get a higher level of value than that. That was priceless. And yet we play the game that the world says we need to play, don't we? And at the same time, the basic needs of many in the church are not being met. And I take it farther. Yes, we are called and commanded to meet the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ first, but there's so many in the world that don't have anything, and yet Christians have it all. <laughs> what is wrong with us? Take a look at your checking account your bank card records to see where your security is. What do you spend your money on? How much of it do you spend on yourself? How much of it do you give away? How much of it do you give to your church so your church as a collective can continue to meet the needs of its members? The gospel calls for us to leverage and use what we have for the cause of Christ. Are you doing that? If not, could it be because that particular area or those particular areas of your life have not yet been submitted to Jesus, have not yet been transformed by the gospel of grace and acceptance and favor from God and love? Could it be that that's why? I'm here to tell you, friends, that God desires to transform these areas of our lives, including mine. God desires for us to be secured 
in his son. He desires for RHC to be a radically generous church. He desires for us to meet one another's needs. And he desires for us to leverage and use what we have for his purposes, for his namesake, for his glory. That's what the early church did. Why would we think in this day and age that we're called to be any different? The church is the church is the church is the church. First century, 21st century. That's the bottom line, friends. Now, we look at 36. Thus, Joseph, who is also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, and here's what he did. He sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Right here in this text, we are introduced to Barnabas. And I heard somebody preach a sermon one time on him, and he called him Barabbas the whole time. And I was like, Barabbas did all that? He gave up his house? I thought he was in prison. It was funny, man. Barabbas was a generous, kind, encouraging man. It's like he was a savage killer. Let me have that pulpit. Yeah, then I'd go up there and say something really stupid, but just like I just did. But anyways, this is the gentleman that went with the Apostle Paul on a church planning expedition. So often we call it a missionary. Uh, you know, Paul was a missionary, and we've reduced down the fact, you know, this idea that Paul just went out to just, you know, share the gospel, and then he left and all that. Yeah, Paul did that, but ch- Paul was a church planter, man. When he went into a community, he planted a church, fashioned a church, appointed elders, appointed pastors. And so Barnabas was a guy, he was a gentleman who went with the Apostle Paul on a church planning uh, expedition. We'll see that later on in the Acts narrative. His name was actually Joseph, but the apostles called him Barnabas because of his incredible gift of exhortation. Barnabas was a kind, generous man who loved to encourage others. He was also one of those, since he was an exhorter, the type of guy that was always encouraging people regardless of their situation. You know, I am a prophet, so repent. You know, he's telling you, you can repent. It's a good thing. God will bless you. I'm telling him, just repent. Quit being dumb, right? That's why I'm not the best counselor in the world. But he had this exhortive, amazing ability to, like, empathize with people and to get inside of their heart, I guess, because that's what an exhorter does. We learned about this, Connie, in our class. He was an encourager, so he was an exhortive kind of guy, really good probably at counseling, but he was one of those half, you know, glass half full guys, positive, encouraging, Caleb thing there again. Just a good guy. He's one of those types of guys that when you meet him and you're around him for a moment, you really like being around him because he makes you feel good. You hang out with me for a half hour and you go, I need to go do something. I need to beat something up with a, give me a baseball bat. I just, I'm like an incendiary bomb, you know. I'm sorry. I'm learning. I'm I'm becoming more sensitive. My wife's like, eh. Yeah, buzzer. But he was one of those guys, right? You know, he was one of those types of guys, man. And he was a nice guy, a kind guy, an encouraging guy, a glass half full type of guy. Those guys are a real joy to be around because they look beyond our foolishness and our mistakes and they continue to exhort and to encourage us. Um, I graduated, it's so cool that you're here, Connie, we graduated from a 15-week course on counseling. It was kind of a a crash course on counseling. (laughs) We're going to teach you how to love people and encourage them really quickly. 
You know, it was a great, yeah. I love you, I'm encouraging you, love Jesus, I'm out. Give me $200, you know, or whatever. No, you didn't charge for it. But anyways, it was this beautiful class, and it was this awesome class. And I think Barnabas, if I remember correctly, was mentioned several times in the class because he kind of, biblically speaking, kind of fits the mold of how a Christian counselor should be. Exhortive. You have to have the gift of exhortation, encouragement, to be a Christian counselor. And that's why it was so challenging for me in there. I was like... So you're saying I have to be a woman to be... No, I'm just kidding. That's not what I'm... No, but it was just hard, you know? And, and like, Connie's here today, and, and she just, she's an exhorter, you know? And it sometimes... Does it not come naturally to us guys? <laughs> Paul's back there going, no, it doesn't. <laughs> Barnabas, it did, brother. And that's another fruit of the gospel. So Barnabas, kind, encouraging guy. Caleb kind of dude. Now, he... This is really interesting, but Barnabas was the brother of Mary, who was the mother of the gospel writer Mark, or John Mark, and she was also the owner of the large house with the upper room where the church met periodically for prayer and stuff, and where that the Pentecost tongues came down and filled them with the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues so they could go out and speak the gospel in these foreign languages. It's also the place where the Lord celebrated the Last Supper. So, Mary was a wealthy woman. His sister was a wealthy woman who had this large house in, in Jerusalem. And so uh, some scholars and commentators say that, you know, this guy Barnabas was a wealthy guy too, like his sister was. He had a property that he sold and brought, and we'll talk about that. But So he was probably a wealthy guy. Now, Barnabas was from Cyprus, which is like a tiny, tiny little island in the Mediterranean that is populated by Greeks and Turks. Uh, we think that he was a wealthy guy like his sister. Um, after he sold his property, he sold this piece of property that he owned, the text says that he took the proceeds and that he placed them at the apostles' feet, laying the money at their feet. And I think that laying the money at their feet really, it's kind of a, a weird thing to me. Like we see in, in uh, the book of Acts later on that you know this guy named Cornelius meets Peter for the first time, and he's blown away, and he bows and begins to worship at Peter's feet. And Peter's like, get up, I'm just a dude, what are you doing? I'm not God, I'm not the Messiah and all that. And so you've got kind of that edginess here with these guys and people bringing the money and putting it at their feet. They're not worshiping the apostles, but I wonder if they sat back and went, what's he doing? I mean, that would be weird if when you guys brought your offerings, you came up and put them at my feet. I'd be like, I, be, it would be weird, right? I mean, it'd be like, why are you putting that at Pastor Phil's feet? He's got flip-flops on, first of all. You don't ever want to get that close to his feet. Why would you do that, right? So I'm thinking that maybe this was a little bit of a weird thing, but it was also a beautiful thing. And one of the things that it, it signifies, it signifies that the apostles were very well trusted with the money because the people freely came and laid it at their feet. They were trusted with the money. They had a proven track record of utilizing the money for the benefit of church members and all that. So people just willfully brought it and laid it down. They knew that these guys would put it out. Now, they didn't hand it to them and put it in their hands. And I think that that's, that is meant to gesture that they weren't giving the money to the apostles. We're putting it at their feet, meaning it's an offering to the Lord. You guys can pick it up when you're ready to pick it up and take it and, and distribute it. We trust that you'll do that. 
And so it signifies that, I think. Worship to God, it signifies that they trusted the apostles, that they would, you know, do with the money the, the right things to do. And, and in all honesty, you know, and I, I don't want to sound negative towards the church in any way, shape, or form, but I've been in the church long enough now uh, to have gotten to a place where I wish the same thing could be said about many of the church leaders and pastors in churches today. I wish that the same thing could be said about being able to trust them with the gifts and things that God's people bring forward for the benefit of the church. Uh, there has been in the church in you know, probably the last hundred years and beyond that with the Victorian age and period, there has just been an obscene amount of spending in the church on beautification. And today, it's, the big thing is technology. And we spend all this money, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on technology. And whenever you question that and you goad against it a little bit, the rationale is always, we're building the kingdom of God. And the thing that always comes to mind with me is, no, you're not. You're benefiting and luxury, you know, you're making your empire more luxurious is what you're doing. You're investing all that you have into a place. A, a place is not people. Yeah, people gather there, but you're not distributing that for the people in some way, shape, or form. You're putting these things up and, and these attractional things and all that, and really it's all done in the name of evangelism because we have all the cool stuff, then people are going to come. But meanwhile, so many, so many, so many needs are still not being met with God's people. And so pastors, I wish the same thing could be said about them. The apostles were very trustworthy, man. We could, you could bring your offering and put it at their feet, and you could turn around and walk away, and you know darn well it wasn't going to go into a bank of nine flat-screen TVs that the church really doesn't need. We don't have any of that stuff here. First of all, we don't have the money for it, but second of all, we have a philosophy that says, let's put it back into the people. Let's put it back into discipleship. Let's put it back into training. And I guess you could say that moving headlights somehow disciple people. Right? I can't figure it out, but somehow that's the philosophy that's behind it. I know of a church <laughs> that spent in upwards of $100,000 on, on concert lighting for the stage, and it's not Big Valley. Because a lot of times when I speak, people think I'm always referencing Big Valley when I came from there. It's not Big Valley, and I'm not going to mention the name of the church, but I know of a church that recently spent an absolute fortune on concert lighting for their stage. And that same church is now being forced to restructure and downsize because giving has dropped. You got all the gadgetry and, and people aren't even coming like they were. And the needs aren't being met with God's people. And, and people have, yeah, has there been a downturn in the economy? Absolutely. But guess what? Some people get pretty freaked out when they see their church leaders starting to spend a fortune on all that stuff. And guess what? Their wallets start to close up. Giving went way down in this church. And now they're having to take full-time staff people and make them part-time. They're having to do all kinds of stuff because they spent an absolute fortune on attractional lighting. Do you think that's right? I have a hard time with it. And guess what? I'm an artsy kind of guy, and I love color, and I think technology is amazing. I just boasted about having an iPhone. I probably need to flog myself right now. But, <laughs> I, you know, in a way, I, I, I'm a consumer too, man. I like all that stuff. I like the gadgetry. I do. 
But when we find ourselves in front of texts like this, how can we accept it? Right? You know, it's, it, we, just, we do what we do, and then, and then all of a sudden, the Word of God just becomes a brick wall. And we're like, ooh, maybe we're not doing this right. Maybe we need to rethink what we're doing. Maybe we need to seek the Lord. Maybe we need to better utilize the gifts and provision and things that God's people have graciously brought forward. We need to employ them for the betterment of God's people. And, and, and I don't think the betterment is, is spending all the money on all that stuff. I think you can find ways to call it that, but there's just other ways to spend it too. People are hungry. People need clothing in the church and out of the church. The thinking behind this stuff is that fancy stage lights and things like that will attract new people. But the church isn't a marketing agency or a retail establishment peddling its brand of doing church or peddling the gospel. But many have turned it into that. That's not what the church is. We are not a retail establishment trying to market our way of doing church or anything. There's one way to do church. We see it so clearly in the book of Acts. And not to mention that the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. They don't want to hear about their sin and their need for Christ. What are we trying to do? Lollipop it up with fancy lights? I wrestle with these things. And I'm tempted by them. I'm tempted to do what everyone else does in the church. Not everyone, most. We need to do what the Word of God says. We need to stick to the Word of God. So many feel that they don't have a choice. Church leaders feel like they don't have a choice in the matter because of our culture. It's our culture that forces us to have to invest so much in beautification, invest so much into technology. It's, it's the time of the day. It's, it's, it's that time in our culture and society. And so we have no choice. We must keep up with the culture. Baloney. The Bible is what dictates. The Bible is what dictates. The Bible is what dictates how we spend money and do church and disciple people and carry the gospel forward. Not our hot mess culture. Amen? We're finished if we begin to forsake any word here. We're done. Oh, you can keep going through the motions and get a lot of people there. But are we really in the will of God and doing what he's called us to do? We've got to challenge ourselves with this stuff. The leadership of the early church, the apostles understood the centrality of God's word and how it was the guide. And that is why the church's needs were being met and, you know, and why the apostles were so well trusted with the money. They knew that people were going to use it rightly. Barnabas placed a fairly large sum of money at the feet. I would say it is because he sold a field. He placed a fairly large sum of money at the apostles' feet so that they would distribute it to the needy folks in the church. The story now shifts from the positive to the negative. We're about to study what I believe is one of the most, I guess it's one of the most tragic things that I've seen in Scripture. It's one of the most mysterious things in Scripture, but it's a very challenging one. 
and I need to couch it with this little commentary by MacArthur before I read it, we must understand right now before we shift into this section that there is no reason to believe that Ananias and Sapphira were not believers. So many have tried to say that God, and we're about to see what happens, God would never treat his own children in this way or judge them this way or deal with them so harshly. Whoever says that is a fool. And so we must get a context that they were believers. And listen to what MacArthur says. He says, some have questioned, this is kind of a foundational thing for where we're going, some have questioned whether or not they were, Ananias and Sapphira were true believers. It is best to see them as genuine Christians for several reasons. First, they were included in the congregation of those who believed in Acts 4.32. They were a part of that congregation, that large number that they couldn't count. Okay, which means they had to be believers to be a part of that congregation. Second, they were involved with the Holy Spirit, thus indicating a relationship to Him. can't be in relationship to the Holy Spirit if you don't know Jesus, if you haven't submitted to Him. You have to do that first. And they knew the Holy Spirit because they basically lied to Him. Third, if they were not Christians, what lesson about sin did this give to teach all the rest all the rest who were true believers. What good would it do to have a tale in the scripture where we have people who don't know Jesus who are struck down by God? What kind of example would that be to the church? The Old Testament is filled with examples of that, and God even jacking up his own people. But what example would it be? These are Christians. We need to learn from Christians, from ourselves, from our own mistakes. Fourth, this is insane, Satan can become personally involved with believers. Matthew 16, 21 to 23, Ephesians 6, 12, 1 Peter 5, 8 to 9. Okay, Satan can get, get all up in your business as a Christian. We think, oh, I'm untouchable. No, you're not. He'll be all over you. He can get in your business, mess with you, tempt you, lead you astray. Finally, this is a big one, death can be divine chastening for a believer. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty to 32, and 1 John 5 to 16. What I just basically told you is that God, in his sovereignty, exercises the right to bring a Christian home immediately if he so desires to. That can be an act of chastisement. And for some of you right now, you've in, you know, invested so much into the grace of God, and grace, God, God's grace is amazing, but you lean so far to that that you can't even comprehend or even begin to believe that God would do such a thing. But the scripture teaches that he will, could and will. So let's make the shift now to five. These guys are Christians, man. There's no reason to believe they aren't. Ananias and Sapphira, they love Jesus. They're in the church. Five, one to two. But a man named, <laughs> look at that, but. The contrast point, but a man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke interrupts this incredible narrative, the pristine church narrative and all that, all that we've seen at the end of chapter 4 that I just taught through. He interrupts it at chapter 5 with the very first word, but... All the stuff was happening, gorgeous, amazing, beautiful, obedience. Everyone's needs were met. The apostles were doing the right thing with the money. Gorgeous, beautiful, pristine church. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But, but, this was his way of introducing a sharp contrast between the 
actions of Barnabas and two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira were a married couple who, like Barnabas, owned a piece of property and then sold it and then brought the proceeds to the apostles. The problem was that they devised a plan to keep some of the money, okay, and then lie about how much they sold it for and then give that balance to the apostles placing it at their feet to give them that shortened amount. Let's say that they sold their property for 25 shekels of gold, which was worth about $50,000. When they came to the apostles, they, t- they told the apostles that they had sold the property for 40,000 shekels of gold. Or they told them that they sold it for 50, while actually se- they told them that they sold it for 40 while actually selling it for 50, and then they kept 10 grand. I mean, isn't that incredible? Like, we sold it for 50, but we're going to tell them that we sold it for 40 so we can keep 10 grand. And so it's, it's something like that. It plays out like that. This is what they did. They went and said, yeah, we, we sold this. And, you know, or Ananias comes and he puts it at their feet and, you know, it's an adjusted amount. It's less the actual net that they took in, that the total amount that they took in. They kept maybe 10 grand or whatever it was for themselves. We don't have a dollar amount. What a scheme they had. Look at verses 2 to 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? See, involvement with the Holy Spirit. To lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. And then he says this, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? And then he says this, you have not lied to man but to God. Peter somehow knew what Ananias was up to, what he had done. He knew that he was lying, and he knew that he was swindling. How did he know this? It doesn't say, but how did he know? Ananias walks up, gives the offering, and he already knows what's going on. It could be that somebody else knew about the transaction and his plot and then told Peter right before he came or sometime during that day. It could be that. It could be, and I think this is interesting, it could be that the person who bought the land was actually present, and then as he brought his offering forward, he whispered to Peter, he's lying, he paid 50, not 40. Could have been like that. Oh, no, no, that's not, hey, Peter, come here. That's not, that's not what he, that's not, that's, not, that's not the full amount. I hate to be a stool pigeon and a little rat, but man, he, he, paid, he, he got 50 for that thing. He just put 32.94 in there. I mean, we don't know how it played out. I suspect that it was the Holy Spirit that revealed this. They were in the Spirit. The apostles were filled with the Spirit, it says back a few verses. I think he was in the Spirit, and he had this wonderful thing called holy discernment. And as he came forward, he already knew about it. He had this gift of discernment. He could tell. He knew that he had sold it for more and was bringing less and lying about the whole thing. I think the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. It seems that that would be the reality here because we're not given any explanation, but they were filled with the Spirit. Very interesting. Now, Peter then asked Ananias, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? What was the motive behind this? What was the motive behind him doing this? What drove him to do such a thing? MacArthur, great commentary on this again. 
He gives us kind of a little picture of what the motive behind it was according to Scripture and his analysis. He says, Ananias and Sapphira saw an opportunity to make double profit. They would gain spiritual prestige and still make money on the side. It would make them look good to bring forth a bunch of money, right? Look what we're doing, everyone. It would make them look good. They'd get that spiritual prestige. Like people would look at them and go, wow, look what they've done. They must really love Jesus. Wow, I wish I could be like them. And yet, they, it seems that they were seeking after that prestige, but they still wanted a little extra dough in their pocket too, right? Because they had a trip to the Sea of Galilee coming up. We didn't even have Tahoe there. We're taking a cruise. It only takes 38 seconds to get across it, but it's one heck of a cruise, especially when a storm brews up. Unbelievable. You almost capsize. It's insane. I mean, who knows what they were thinking, right? But they wanted spiritual prestige. They wanted to be seen by men as good Christians, and they wanted to still profit. And he says, withholding part of the money for their own use was not a sin. It wasn't a sin for them to withhold some of the money. They could have kept some of the money and just brought a part of it forward. As Peter, uh, Peter clearly states in verse 4, Peter basically said, you had the money, basically you could have done with it what you wanted to. You didn't have to come here and lie about it and do all that. You could have kept some of it and just came. All you had to do was be truthful about what you were doing. That's what basically Peter told him. Peter stated in 4 that they could have used the money however they desired. And then MacArthur says, nowhere, nowhere were the believers commanded to give everything. I alluded to that earlier. Their giving, like all New Testament giving, was voluntary. The overt sin was lying by publicly pretending to have given all the proceeds of the sale of their property. That sin was but the outward manifestation. However, the deeper, more devastating sin was hypocrisy based on a desire for spiritual status. They desired the approval of men for their sacrificial act and to be thought of as members of those most spiritually noble. They wanted the praises and attention of men. They wanted to be seen as super Christians or whatever that is. Jesus warned his disciple against these sorts of things and stuff like that. He warned them against this stuff during his ministry. Kevin read a massive section uh, where these warnings are, are riddled throughout. And I'll just go back to Matthew 6, 1, which is what he opened with. Beware, Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. <laughs> beware of seeking after spiritual prestige before men is basically what Jesus says. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to what? Be seen by them, to get their attention so that they'll think you're more religious, more holy, more righteous. And then he says this, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Jesus warned against it. The apostles were aware of it. Probably many church members there were aware of that. And yet Ananias and Sapphira were completely oblivious to this. They just went out and wanted to perform before men and make men think that they were more holy and more righteous and more religious and more capable. Spiritual prestige is a plague in the church. How often do we play that game of wearing the facade and doing things openly before men to make ourselves look good or to get their approval, to make them like us more, to make the pastor favor us more? 
It's a scourge in the church today as we speak. And it started back here in the early church, and it's continued and continued for the last couple of thousand years. Amazing, amazing, amazing. And we need to repent, repent, repent. We're not performing. Friends, the gospel releases us of that. We've talked about that so much. Now look at Peter's last statement to Ananias. He said, you have not lied to man, but to God. What a statement that is. You think that you've, Ananias, that you've tried to fool us to, by lying to us about what you've done? We know your motives. We know that you're after prestige and you want to be honored and placed at the high place at the table. You have not deceived any of us. You, you, have, merely, you have lied to us, but ultimately you have lied to God openly. Publicly they've done it. This is a public setting. And what happens next? When Ananias, look at 5 and 6, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him and carried him out and buried him. Bottom line, God struck Ananias down. And the purpose for striking him down was to purge the church of unholiness and lies and deception and to use the example of Ananias to what, in verse 5, to create great fear upon all who heard of it. God struck down Ananias for his devilish deed and he used it as an example for the rest of the church. God commands for his church to be holy as he is holy. Ananias brought unholiness Sin, lies, and deception, selfishness into the church. And the church is to be a mirror of the holiness and righteousness and love and grace of God to the world. Sin in the church obscures and mars the image of the one who paid for her with his own blood, Jesus Christ. And guess what, friends? It sounds harsh. It needs to be harsh. God will not stand for that from you or I. Especially I. Especially the pastor. We are to be a holy example to the world. I've heard preachers say that God no longer responds to his children, to Christians, sins this way. He would never do something like this again and blah, 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 blah. And this was a special instance because he wanted to set an example at the incarnation, at the beginning of the church. How foolish is it for us to believe that? That kind of thinking and teaching does nothing more than give everyone that hears it an invitation into whole unholy living in the church. If we minimize what God did here now, what kind of doorways does that open up for ourselves? Oh, God, doesn't, God would never do such a thing like that. It's all grace, 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 grace. Guess what? This happened after the cross. <laughs> this happened after the church started and the cross and Jesus and the resurrection. This is church age stuff here. We're in the church age. Don't we? We, we never need to fall victim. We never need to submit to the devil's lies about that, that God would never do such a thing again. God does whatever he desires, even to the point of taking one of his own children out and home along with his wife if he needs to do that. Is that a scary thing? In a way, yes, 
because you leave behind loved ones and all that. You go to be with Jesus. That's a spectacular thing, but what a way to go. And then for these people, it was written about, and we're studying them right now. And it's been in the scriptures for how many years? And how many people have studied? Look at these ding-dongs. Yeah, you need to look in the mirror when you say, look at these ding-dongs, ding-dong. Look at these ding-dongs. Right? It's a warning for us now. <laughs> and then you, if you do this, you become part of Pastor Phil's commentary, commentary right? No, you don't. Maybe a little bit. <laughs> Mostly it's my own experience that's coming out, so it's not you that I'm thinking of. It's me. And so we must not deduce or reduce it down to that. We must not think that God doesn't respond that way, that he will still chastise his children that way. And what promises in scripture are we given that he, you know, that ensure against those things, that God would never do that again. You can't find that anywhere in scripture. Read the Old Testament to see how God dealt with the unholiness of his people. You know, we're in a new era, the New Testament era, but God is God. Read the apostolic warnings and the epistles about such things. They're constantly warning against sin and its consequences. You know, sin, whether in the church or out of the church, you know, whether you're a believer or a non-believer, is an absolute affront to God, and God is just, and God deals with sinners. End of story. God is God. He does what he wants with his creation. May we never, and may we never, ever see or treat grace as a license for sin. We so often do that. We don't believe that God does what he does then or whatever, and, we, and then we minimalize sin, and, and then all of a sudden we see grace as like this wonderful opportunity just to continue to be unholy and yet we're covered by this grace and are you kidding me don't ever 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 look at your sin like that sin should break us and crush us even the smallest ones it's it's an affront to god it's an affront to his church and the beauty of his church and to christ jesus and it destroys our lives and our families and relationships and it mars the image of this beautiful god who redeemed us may we never say I blew it, oh well, I've got the grace of God to cover me. Why would we ever think such a thing or say such a thing or trivialize our sin in such a way? There is nothing in Scripture that says that that's permittable or okay. Sin is horrific. If you don't think sin is bad, think of the blood-soaked murder that took place at the cross. That's how bad sin is. Jesus was slaughtered because of it. It's horrendous. It's horrible. It is an affront to God. Do not minimalize it in your own lives. Treat it seriously. Treat it seriously. Don't trivialize it, even the smallest things. Back to the text. The Holy Spirit isn't done yet. He's about to issue another warning against sin, lies, deception in the church in verses 7 to 10. After an interval, I've got to speed up. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, that's Sapphira, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, I sold it for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And then it says, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And then it says, when the young men came in and found her dead, uh, when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her behind her husband. When I read that, I just I immediately thought about these young men. 
you go to a church and you, you know and you hear the gospel and you respond and you become a part of the church and next thing you know you're assigned to carrying dead bodies all over the place <laughs> these guys must have been thinking what kind of church is this i thought this was a church of the living right these guys and they were there again and they carried her body and it was almost like okay you guys are on body duty today this morning god's going to strike some folks down you're leading worship over here bethany phil you're going to preach the sermon uh lily you're going to do some killer singing cameron you're running sound Fred and Mark, you guys are going to carry dead bodies. And it was just like they were like there waiting. Boom. Doing my part. <laughs> Serving the Lord. Isn't that a weird thing? And now I'm trivializing it, but it's like, who were these guys? I love my job. I had no idea joining the church would mean that we'd be carrying dead bodies all over the place and burying them. What kind of weird church is this? Peter gave Sapphira, now this is cool, Peter gave Sapphira something that Ananias didn't get, and that's an opportunity to tell the truth. Ananias came with his deception and his lies and, and all that stuff, and, and they were pointed out, and he was called on them, and then he was struck down. But Peter actually gave Sapphira an opportunity to come clean. He said, did you sell it for this much? There was the out. She could have said, and she didn't know that her husband had died, and I suspect things would have been way different if she did. If she knew the young men were waiting to carry her corpse, she'd have been like, no, we sold it for 40, my bad, right? She didn't have any idea, but Peter gives her an out. He says, tell me, tell me the truth, basically. Did you sell it for so much? And she said, yes, we did. She didn't know what happened with her husband. I suspect that if she had, she wouldn't have lied. But the reality is God wasn't interested in some after-the-fact response by her here, was he? He didn't provide her with the information about her husband. He wanted her to make the right choice on her own without that knowledge. And that is the very thing that the Holy Spirit does. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit living within you. He warns us of temptation. He convicts us of sin and all these things. That is his role. He is our guide, our teacher, our leader. That's what he does. It's a beautiful thing. And guess what? Sapphira was a believer. Holy Spirit should have been in her. She needed to come to terms with her own sin and reality right there and deal with it. And I can guarantee you right now, if she was a true believer, and I believe she was, right when Peter asked that, right there is the moment where the Holy Spirit said, you're lying, tell the truth. And guess what she did? Shut up, you bother me. Yeah, we sold it for that much. What a tragedy. When I thought about that, what was the reason why she missed it or why she didn't hear the voice of the Holy Spirit in there? Well, she was so enamored by her desire for prestige and her sin and her pride that the voice of the Holy Spirit was about that big and probably said, don't do this. She probably couldn't even hear him. And I thought when I was studying this, how often is it that I do not hear the voice of God? that I do not hear the Holy Spirit saying, Phil, do not do that. Because the sin in my life overpowers the still small voice of God. It's way too often, friends. How often is it for you? God has set a high expectation for us. He's given us the Holy Spirit to empower us to be, do, be able to do these things. He wants us to make right choices and to be truthful always. It's difficult. We do fail. But he wants us to be honest about our failures not dishonest. He has equipped us to be able to be that way. And so she lied and was given an opportunity to come clean and blew it 
and sitting down right there. And I suspect that Peter may not have known if she was involved, and that's why he asked her that. He knew Ananias was involved from the get-go. If the Holy Spirit revealed, he'd probably said both of them were in it. But he still asked her. I think that he did that as a, as a means of grace and as an act of mercy so that she would not be struck down. But her answer showed that she was a co-conspirator. She lied just as her husband did. They conceived it together, um, and she paid the price for it. And it, it's, it's like one of the things, again, as I, as I kind of wrap this up, there are so many people in the church who are like Sapphira in that the only time they grieve and feel remorse over their sin um, is when they are judged for it, supposedly. Now, Sapphira was killed and, and taken to be with the Lord, but there's so many people in the church that don't respond to their sin until they actually get called out on it, and maybe they're facing punishment. And yet we're given the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to discern sin right up front and to repent of it immediately. But there's so many people in the church that feel nothing over their sin or it's so minimalized because of all the sin noise in their life that it takes some kind of a big thing to get their attention. Look at what happened with King David with Bathsheba. He went for a year in that deception and lie until he realized when Nathan the prophet said, you committed adultery and murdered her husband. How is that? And I think in a way, it's happened with Sapphira here. I mean, she couldn't hear uh, the Holy Spirit convicting her of sin and all that. And, and then if she would have known about it, she would have repented. But it was all after the fact anyways. And how often is that that, that happens to us and with us? How can we be Christians in Christ and not feel anything over our sin, but yet feel something over it when it's actually pointed out or we're about to be punished for it? How is that possible? Could it be that we have so much sin in our lives that we don't hear conviction, we don't hear the Spirit, and and we just keep going and going and going and doing our thing? And it's an amazing thing that Christians do this. I've met so many that are like that. They only feel bad about what they do when they get busted, and usually the badness, the, the, the bad that they feel is because they're about to be punished, not because of their act. Oh, we have not been called to that, friends. Not at all. If you only feel remorse over your sin, if you feel remorse over your sin only when you get caught, something is majorly wrong. It could be that you've allowed so much sin into your life that the Holy Spirit has been almost totally quenched and that the only time he can get your attention is when you're about to get in trouble for your sin. I can't tell you how many Christians I've known who live that way. But the Holy Spirit has come to warn us of temptation and to convict us at the moment of sin and during sin and sometimes right after. And so what's the problem? We have so much sin in there that we can't sense where we're at and we can't hear the voice of God? And then there's those who literally feel nothing when they sin. There's just nothing. There's no response whatsoever. They just keep going and going and going and sin. And, and, and there's some in the church that say they're Christians, and yet that's how they function. They just never respond to their sin remorsefully. It never bugs them. You point it out, whatever, it's like, hey, what is going on there? Well, I think 1 John 1.8 says a lot. It says, if 
we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If you are only bothered by your sin on occasion, there's a problem. You probably got a lot of sin that needs to be dealt with. If you're never bothered by your sin, you're not in Christ. You can't be. And so don't say that you are. But you need Christ. You need Jesus. Both scenarios, both people need Jesus. Those who let the sin in and don't, it doesn't bother them and they're Christians and they only get bugged about it once in a while, you need Jesus. You need to repent. You need to be refreshed in the Holy Spirit. You need to come to the mercy seat of Christ and say, I've got all this junk in my life. I repent of it. Deliver me from it. Help me. Restore me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. And if you feel nothing over your sin, you're not in Christ. But there is a gracious invitation here today to be in Christ. Those same sins will carry you all the way to condemnation, eternal condemnation in hell forever. But if you repent of those sins and believe in Jesus, the person and work of Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life of righteousness, never breaking a law, fulfilled all of that, died on a cross for sinners, was buried and rose again, you can be delivered from this world system. You can be delivered from your own sin and the wages of that sin and brought out of this poisonous philosophy of the world of performance and all of these things and debauchery and sin, sin, sin. You believe in Jesus and it all changes. The end result in the passage is precisely what the Holy Spirit aimed to utilize this horrific event for and that's in verse 11. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. God uses it as an example to purge his church and to warn his church, keep the church holy. And that means as individual Christians live holy lives and as a collective live holy lives. 